So I want to put this in context. So if you want to, I'm not going to read all of chapter 1, but we're just going to kind of look at um, what chapter 1 did after the greeting. Um, Paul in verse 8 begins to say, you know, it's just like, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he's writing to a group of believers that are receiving his word and have a witness in the world and also have great challenges in the world. So primarily a, a Gentile church, but there's also a Jewish church. And, um, and constantly in view is the tension between um, how is the, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith actually the same faith. And this is what God is in Paul, God through Paul is proclaiming to the Romans as well as to us this morning. And in verse 16 he says, it's a great uh, pivotal verse in that setting up um, what this book and what Paul's message is about is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is setting this out with the gospel and letting them know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So there's a book uh, that was given to us at General Assembly um, called, I think it was by R.C. Sproul, it says, Saved from what? That's a good question. And somebody might ask you that, you know, if, if you were just to say, are you saved? You know, and they don't know anything about Christianity. They'd be like, from what? You know, so you kind of need to tell them from what they need to be saved. And um, this is what he does now. In these next several verses, in the next few chapters, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us Basically, as Jack Miller has said, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are, but God's grace is far greater than you ever imagined. But unless I get you good and lost, unless I help you to understand how lost you are, this gospel is not as good news as you understand it to be. And so Paul is going to spend these next time in helping us, them, Jews, Christians, everyone to understand all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're in need of a Savior. So in verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed, not will be revealed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So all people are under this divine wrath. They're currently under a divine wrath. And then he goes beginning in 19 and 20 talking about general revelation general revelation, also known as natural revelation, so that you can see the heavens declare, the Bible tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God, so that you should be able to see from creation that there must be a creator, and how his majesty he is, his invisible powers at work, you should even, he's going to begin to argue now, see the morality of God at work in the world, but then he says that we're without excuse, and that's in the end of verse 20, so they are all excuse because God has revealed himself in creation. And then he begins to talk about how the judgment of God is manifest in the world. And he basically is saying, I turn them over to their sin. And he calls out particularly sexual sins, which are particularly, again, uh, raising its head in our, in our time as this particular issue is being pushed as one of the primary issues 
Um, if you listen to Opalma Robertson's speech on the floor of General Assembly, that, that I think I might have sent a link out to or something, but you can look it up. And he just says, you know, with the sin of homosexuality, um, there's a certain time when the church has to make a statement and say, you know, no further, this stops here. And he's saying that that point, which is, has been faced in the, even the, our denomination, President Church in America, to say um, a homosexual is not to be um, ordained to the pulpit ministry of a church, not to be a pastor of a church. Now, this means that a person who, I won't spend a whole lot of time talking about this, but um, any sin um, that is not repented of, any sin that also maybe you see it as, I understand that it's sinful, I recognize that I need to continue to work to suppress this sin, but if it is something that still is a draw on you, something that you still fight and struggle with where it's a real temptation. Like if I was a kleptomaniac, I guess they still use that word. Like I just steal. I had to try to pick a sin that I'm not particularly disposed to. But if you see me caught stealing next week, it'll be because God's trying to teach me something. So, uh, but I don't have that problem. I don't go through the store and go, I really want to steal, but I just, but I won't because I know it's wrong. Oof, oof, oof. You know, it's just time and opportunity. I mean, that's just the thing. And then, so it's the same thing with this, whatever sin it is, and we have a particular um, worldview, philosophy, theology rising in our midst that says if a person is a homosexual, understands it to be a sin and and will not act upon it, they will live celibate lives, then they can serve in the gospel ministry of the pulpit ministry of the church. And um, there's a certain sense in which that sounds right, but when you dig underneath it, you have to kind of look and see what it's saying. doesn't mean if you struggle with homosexuality that you can't be a member of a church. This is talking about the gospel ministry. But what we see is, when you look at the world and the prevalence of these particular sins, as well as, um, we talked about abortion last week, but all of these sins that are attacking the image of God in the world, Man is created, male and female, he created them in the likeness and image of God. Satan wants nothing more than to attack and destroy the church. And he also wants to attack, which is the primary image of God in this world, but each person is of equal dignity and value and worth, and no matter what sin they're dealing with, and no matter who they are or where they are, they still bear the likeness and image of God and deserve our prayer and our sympathy and our care. So we had to be very careful with this because that is where Satan would attack. But also, if we continue to, a church were to continue to follow a sin and not call sin what it is or be afraid to mention certain things because the world's watching or because uh, they might begin to not like us. The world doesn't like us. The world is against us. The friendship with the world is enmity with God. This is what the Bible teaches. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Do these things, but don't Take the word of God and water it down so that people will like you more and maybe come to church. We can't talk about this because they don't like that. They don't, they don't like God, okay? That they suppress the knowledge of God and their sin. We know as much as we struggle with faith, and we have the Holy Spirit within us. A person that does not have the Holy Spirit but has the work, and this is what we're going to look at, but does have the work of God in their lives. There's a common grace at work. They seem to be pretty good people, um, you still have to get them to understand their need of a Savior. And this is what Paul is doing. And he's saying one of the ways 
that you see in a society that God's judgment is upon them is that God begins to turn people over to their sin and it becomes more and more and more prevalent. And even those who say it's okay do not only say it's okay, but they, um, as it says in verse 32, um, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we have to be uh, very careful of these things. And then in verse 2, he, he struggles with this thing that says, um, what about the person that says, hey, I'm not so bad. Those guys that you just mentioned, all these sins that he goes through and, and talks about, you can sit there maybe and go, whoo, that, that's not me. He says, oh, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge? So this is his first argument with people who are, think they're self-righteous, is what you, the way you're proclaiming your self-righteousness is by saying there are people out here who are unrighteous. And he's saying, okay, so you're going to have a judgment, and that's good, but make sure you take that judgment and you look at yourself as well, because if you put yourself in the place of a holy God and look at the world, then it's like, God's not pleased with that. And he's saying, you have to, you're, you yourself, um, do you think that you'll escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience? God's being patient with you. Are you presuming upon it, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So you're not seeing yourself judged? And sometimes people will live very ungodly lives in the name of God and see things, maybe their church is growing, maybe their life is going good, maybe they feel like things are just going great. And um, you know, they, they, they're, work, they're naming God but denying his actual power, power of God to salvation. And all this patience and kindness is supposed to be leading them to repentance. So people are just simply really, um, if they're being you know, legalistic about the law, I'm using the law, I'm using external means to make me look good and trying to make everybody else get the external stuff polished. He's saying, <laughs> you know, you may think, and it might look by the world's standards but that that's working, but it's not. Because in eternally your dead man's bones. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And it's going to be the last, that's verse 16 at the end of our passage today. He will render to each one according to his works. And that's going to be a key passage. Note that. He will render to each one, you, 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 me, 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 according to his works. That wants to look at Judgment is done by works. Take this and hold on to this. Listen to it the right way. Judgment, you will be judged by works. Unbeliever, you will be judged by works. Believer, you will be judged by works. What else would judgment be based on? But works. So let's hold that there. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be a tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And we'll get to our verses for today. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now this is the first time this word justified has shown up in Paul's writings. It means it's a legal declaration that you have been declared righteous. But when you see the word at the beginning of this, um, for the, it, it's not the hearers of law who are righteous. That word righteous and that word justification, it's, it's the same root word in Greek. It's dikaiosene. So you're being, when he says justified, it just doesn't sound right for us to say you're being righteousified. But that's what it means. You're being declared righteous. You are righteous. And in this one, it says you're going to be declared righteous. You see the word just. It's a similar word. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so there again, Paul brings up judgment. I was surprised to look up how many times it, the Bible talks about Paul proclaiming the gospel and the judgment of God. He doesn't ever just have, you know, God loves you as his message. There is judgment of God on the ungodly. So as we read this, you kind of need to be asking yourself, hopefully, maybe you've asked yourself this a lot, but just think about it. The question being, have you ever done anything wrong? If you're married and you think the answer is no, then don't look at your spouse. And um, we, There's an uh, evangelistic program called um, The Way of the Master, and one of the things you do is talk about the Ten Commandments and say, have you ever broken any Ten Commandments? Don't lie, don't steal. Have you ever stolen anything? You ever, you know, what, do you, what do you call somebody that steals? And they'll say a stealer. And it's like, yeah, well, a thief. You know, you've ever you know, committed adultery. God says you ever looked on somebody to lust after them. You committed adultery in your heart. So using the Ten Commandments, the law, the moral law of God, to say, hey, look at yourself. But what Paul is saying here is you don't even have to have the law written. You could have the question just being, you could ask anybody out there, have you ever done anything wrong? Have you ever done anything wrong? And I think, you know, unless you've got some weird people, which there are, or they're, or they're lying. Um, have you ever done anything wrong? You know, yeah. So just but looking at yourself, have you ever done anything wrong? And then you have to ask this question, well, how wrong was it? You know, how, how wrong were certain things you did? What's, what's how wrong were some of the things you've done? How wrong? Does your conscience bother you about it? Does your conscience accuse you of guilt? And this word, these two words here in verse 15, thoughts either accuse or excuse. Um, they're actually, in Greek, they're two um, words that are used in a law court. And a, a better word for um, accuse we get. You know, you're being accused of something. Um, but then the excuse, I think the better word that I think King James, different translations use is defend. Because if you think law court, somebody's accusing you of something and then somebody comes to your defense. And so you that's the two, the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney. Your conscience is both of those things. And your conscience does this. And your conscience, we see in the word here, um, you have the work of law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So we're talking about two different things, the heart and the conscience as being two different things. 
So as you think about your heart, your heart is sort of that, that idea, that thing that's set up inside a person that, that kind of is like a moral compass. It's like this, you know, things are right and things are wrong, and then that conscience is the judgment over those things. Um, so, you know, let's go rob a bank. I'm going to stick on this theme of, man, if anything, if anything is stolen in the next... <laughs> I don't want you. Don't think about me. Um, the why? Let's go. Let's go rob a bank. No, why not? Well, one, we'll get caught and go to jail. Okay, that's good. God has put um, the civil magistrate. He's put the um, he's put the ministry of the sword out there for a reason to restrain evil. But you know that just means you'll find opportunity that's a little easier. You might not get caught. That's the only thing keeping you. But if you're kind of like, no, it's not. I just don't. I don't feel good about that. I don't think I want to do that. That's your heart, kind of saying, oh, I don't want to do that. And then you do it, and then you feel all guilty about it. There's your conscience kicking in, just saying you ought not to have done it. And some things you might do and say, I can't do that because my conscience would just tear me up. Because you know, you've learned your conscience sits there and and convicts, but it can also defend you. Two, it can say, well, yeah, you did that, but you're not as bad as other people. You know, you kind of think of the two, there's Jiminy Cricket you can think about. There's also the good angel and the bad angel. We think about these things a little bit, but it's like, you know, your conscience can say, you're not as bad as other people. You had good reason for what you did. And isn't it, I just find it amazing that, I think everybody does it, when you talk to yourself, it's like, like there's more than one person in there carrying on the conversation. You know, oh, you did good. You think I did? Oh, you did good. You know, you have these conversations with yourself. Uh, you didn't know any better. I mean, what, what does your conscience do to defend and excuse you? You know, I was, um, I was young. I was foolish. They deserved it. On and on, the defense of the conscience can go. But the accusations of conscience can also condemn, you know, who are you to be forgiven? You are not a good person. Guilty. Liar. And then just name-calling. You know, your conscience can just start to just hack away at you. And if you listen to people who um, have that ministry of self-condemnation very active in their lives, it's like one of the things I'll tell people is, man, if you talk to other people, <laughs> if you are as judgmental of other people as you are to yourself, you people wouldn't be able to stand to be a, around you. And then we do know people who are kind of like that, too. But just think of the what must it take for a person whose conscience just convicts, 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 and calls names and stuff? What do you do to get that thing to shut up? And that's what happens with the natural man. Or you have a conscience that just makes excuses, excuses, excuses. And then all of a sudden, it's like you see somebody might be all puffed up. I guess, you know, I've, my conscience has gone so far as to convince me that I'm not a bad person that it has now convinced me that I'm one of the greatest persons who's ever lived. You know, so you're getting all these things. And what Paul is saying in this is what you see at work in this is law. Even if they don't have the law, what you're seeing at work is the fact that I have put and built and created in this universe, particularly in my image bearers, a knowledge of right and wrong. But you're falling. There was sin entered into the world. And you still have a conscience. And you still have a heart. You still have a sense of right and wrong. Sometimes that thing lines up with the word. And Paul is saying, there are times when even those people who don't have the law, they just, they don't steal. They aren't killing. They don't lie. They don't have the word. They don't have the law. But they're by nature doing good things. You get a guy like that, a gal like that, a gal, 
people still say that, then that just does good all the time, and that's just who they are. They will be judged on their works. And so what we're going to look at is, okay, is that, is that even possible? But then you get people who recognize, and you can look at yourself and say, you know, I'm not a good person, I have done wrong, and you begin to convict yourself of sin, so you have to ask yourself if you can convict yourself of sin being evil. Think about God who is holy and his conviction of sin. You know, so it's another one of those things. It's like, gosh, if I can even tell what I've done wrong, I can even come in judgment on myself. Imagine the guy that is the author of your conscience. How terrible his judgment could be. So what is the standard? And that really is the question we have to ask the world. By what standard are you talking about right and wrong? And God's standard is, and this is, you really have to talk to people about this because most of the people that will carry on much of a conversation with you about the gospel uh, consider themselves to be relatively, and that's the key word, relatively good people. God's not going to send me to hell because I see people who deserve to go to hell and I'm not that bad. So it's like, well, by what standard? You know, it's by your personal standard of right and wrong. I feel like by my personal standard, it's like, no, by your personal standard, even you would convict you. And that's another thing that Paul's getting at here. If you really stripped it down, you know that even you would convict you. But there are some people who've gone so far and their consciences are so evil and seared and defiled, as the Bible says, that they would not do nothing but excuse themselves. And that will be held against them because it's clear that your very conscience and heart doesn't even begin to, at any point or a very little point, conform itself to the, the, the morality that's been put forth in the world. And this is what he means by um, that um, verse 15. They show the work of law written in the heart while their conscience bearing witness. Uh, wait, where's that verse? Hang on. For when the Gentiles do by nature what the law requires, they are law to themselves. So when he's saying they are a law to themselves, what he's not saying is they are their own law. It's like because if, what you need to look at is um, Romans 4, 14, this is where there is no law, there is no sin. So you have these people who have no law, and they're being judged by their consciences and souls. So there is a law there, is what God is saying. Where there is no law, there is no sin. But even those who do not have the law, have a law, have the law written on their hearts and their consciences. And so we have to say, what is the standard? And the standard is absolute, total perfection and holiness. Four times in the book of Leviticus, we read, Be holy as I am holy. And then if you think, well, that's Old Testament, Paul picks it up in 1 Peter 1.16 and says, Be holy as I am holy. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. So that is the standard. Absolute, total, moral perfection by the standard that God sets, not by our own standards. So as we're thinking that judgment is done by works, there are two points that he's making. One, Jews believed that they were saved. Many of the Jews believed that they were saved because they had the law, because they were God's people, because they were God's chosen people. They believed that they were saved by simply having the law. But Romans 4.15 says, 
the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. If I just read a couple more sentences, I'd have been there. Romans 4, 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Paul's point is that there is a law written into the moral fiber of the universe, and God bears witness to it in our hearts and in our consciences. So Paul is not talking here about salvation, but he's talking about judgment. Salvation is being declared righteous. Salvation is being justified in God's court of law. Also important for those who call themselves Christian is that we're not to just be hearers of the gospel. It's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law. Same thing with the gospel. It's not just the hearers of the gospel that are justified, but the doers of the gospel that are justified. But judgment is by works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat to be judged on our works. And then here in chapter 2, back in Romans, in verse 14, the Gentiles who do not have the law, when they by nature do what the law requires, are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So there is this law that's manifest in the life of the non-believers, the work of the law written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness. And so we see there's a problem with the hearts and with the conscience of the believer, of the non-believer, of all people without Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 25-33, people can have a weak conscience. This is where he's talking about food that's been sacrificed to idols. People they have a conscience that's telling them to do this or don't do this, but it's easily wounded. So what Paul is saying is like, be careful not to offend them because of their conscience, even though it's a weak conscience. But you can have a weak conscience. It needs to be built up and in discernment through the Word of God. Hebrews 10.22 says you can have an evil conscience. Now think about that. <laughs> And that's the condition of non-believers. Ultimately, it's like some are just more worse. What would be worse than having an evil conscience? You got Jiminy Cricket up there. And you know, Jiminy Cricket's doing it. I don't know if everybody's read or watched Pinocchio, but it's pretty good. You know, Jiminy Cricket's right there saying, you know, don't do this. That's Mickey Mouse. I can't remember Jiminy Cricket's voice. Anyway, he says, don't do this. You know, I haven't watched or read Pinocchio in a long time. Says, don't do it. Don't do it. What are you doing? Don't do it. So think of an evil Jiminy Cricket. Do it. Do it. Go. Oh, you're terrible for having done that. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Do it, do it. You know, it's like that's the emperor from Star Wars. I don't know. So you see all these voices in your head, in your heart. I mean, think of, I mean, that is enough to drive a person crazy. And just imagine, that's a lot of what we see in the world. How do you, what do you do with that? How do you suppress that? What do you do? How do you, how do you move that? How do you this into that? And it's the drugs, alcohol, sex, sin, suppression, whatever. It's very difficult that you can have an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22 says, through baptism of the Holy Spirit, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's one of the things that happens in regeneration is you're, you're, you're praying for and asking for a conscience that works properly. Help my conscience to work. Help me have a heart. Why do Christians do right and wrong? 
Well, it's supposed to be because your heart has changed. The only real motivation is out of faith because it's like, I just want, I have a changed position. I have disposition that's different. I want to do this. So you can see in your own self how sometimes you're still the old man and sometimes you're, you're the new man. And that's part of that prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's like, it's not saying in the same proportion. It's saying, I see at work within me a principle that's causing me to want to forgive people. That's not normal, not in the way I was. I see you working in my life, so therefore I can depend on, if you're causing me to be a little bit better and I'm being conformed more to you, you must be awesome, so God, give me my daily bread and forgive me my debts because I see myself becoming more like you, which means that's your character. Help me be more like you. Titus 1.15 says people, some people have a defiled conscience. It means it's no longer clean. And 1 Timothy 4.2 says um, there are people who are just habitual liars or lying about the truth and the gospel and things, and they have seared their conscience. So you can actually have a conscience that works, so you ignore it. It works, you ignore it. You, you know, it's like if you have somebody that's doing something, you say, stop it, stop it, stop it. You know, eventually, I'm just going to stop saying stop it, and I'm out of here. And that's what your conscience does. Your conscience gets seared like a steak. It just gets tough. And it's not working anymore. So some people that ignore their consciences for so long, that's where they've ended up. So on the day of judgment, a person's own conscience will be that witness against them, convicting them of evil, demonstrating its own evil nature uh, by defending evil behavior sometimes. Um, the very brokenness of a person's conscience will bear witness against them. So then Jesus testifies to the uh, judgment by works. Can a person be declared righteous by good works? Can a person be declared righteous by good works? Yes. Are you shaking your head? Let me hear me out. <laughs> if if the answer is no, we have no savior. Okay, so let it let it work a second. <laughs> okay, can a person be declared righteous by good works? Yes. And no, but yes. Yes, if that person is perfect. But the bad news is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, are without excuse. Let's go quickly, Matthew chapter 19. Jesus himself saying, you know, you can be declared righteous by works. So Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. This man comes up to Jesus. It doesn't say that he's trying to test him or anything like this. Apparently he's asking, and possibly a legitimate question. He really wants to know this. He's asking Jesus in Matthew 19, 16. He says, uh, And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And so if you just stop it right there, uh, that's God. There's only one who is good. Why do you call me good teacher? Why are you calling me good? He's not saying he's not good. He's saying, you don't know who I am. You think I'm just a regular teacher. Then why do you call me good? There are none who are good. No, not one. So he's taking a little stab at this guy's theology, just a little bit right here. And he says, um, there's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Is he lying to him? <laughs> you know, he's like... If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Because he's working within this guy's worldview. He's working within this guy's theology. And what he's saying is, if you can keep eternal life, keep the commandments. Isn't that what the Word's teaching you? Isn't that what the Torah is teaching? Isn't that what this is being saying? Be perfect as I am perfect. And if we're going to use uh, what must I do, then here's what you got to do. You got to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. 
So what he's wanting the guy to see is, you're born in sin. You, you don't keep the commandments. The commandments are there to keep you. And he's saying, which ones? That's what the guy says. <laughs> he's the key to commandments. He says, which ones? I mean, it's such an odd question. We're, we take so for granted what we mean by that now. But he was like, well, which ones are you talking about? There's a bunch of them. Okay, what is it, 600 and something, I think it is, the number in the Old Testament people figured out. He's like, which one are you talking about? He says, you know, <laughs> you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, all these I've kept. I've done it. He's thinking, yes, 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 yes. I've done it. What do I still lack? So what did Jesus leave out of these commandments? It's the first table of law. Love the Lord thy God, thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship him with images. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. These things. Didn't mention that. I'm just talking about externally how you live your life. And you think you got that. And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, because this is the standard, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, people like to twist this verse to say, how do you get saved? It's by selling everything you have and giving to the poor. And then you become the poor, and then somebody else sells all they have, and they give to you. It's like a never-ending little cycle that happens right there. But it's like Jesus is talking to that guy. And you may well be that guy. What if God said to you, hey, you want to be perfect? Where in your life, what particular sin would he hit at to say, do this? And you would look at him and go, uh, yeah, I can't do that. Or if he were to say, then stop doing this, and you would say, uh, yeah, I can't stop. You know, we would hope there's nothing. God come to you and say, do this, don't do that. You'd be like, but Jesus is looking at you. And he's ripped away all pretense. He knows you better than you know yourselves. This guy, it says, um, he tells him, he says, go sell everything you have, give to the poor. That's not even the main thing he's talking about. It's just in the way right now. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. So invite him to be a, a, a disciple. Come follow me. Come follow me. And the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And so this is the work of the law on this guy's heart. He had great possessions. Now, a lot of people have great possessions and they could give it all away and follow, but not this guy. This guy's heart was with his possessions. And Jesus goes straight to that possession. But he does use the moral law to say, do you want to be perfect? Then you've got to keep the moral law perfectly. And so the Christian, this is my last point, and it's a very quick point that we'll make, is that the Christian is saved by works. And hopefully you've already picked up on the, the nuance that I'm, I'm getting at here, which is, you know, how can, God, how can God save us? Because, again, well, Paul, I should have kept reading. Matthew 19, 16. Let me, let me get back there one time. Matthew 19, 16. Because the disciples are watching this thing, and they're amazed, and so they get to the point... Verse 23, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, only a, and with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. So we got twisted in our day. We're like rich people probably going to hell and poor people are going to heaven. In their day, you're rich because of God's blessing upon you. And they're like, even rich people can't get into heaven. They're astonished. And then they said, well, then who can be saved? 
If not even rich people can get in, who can be saved? And God looks at Jesus, looks at them, and he says, with man, this is impossible. And then he has, but with God, all things are possible. Because what Paul wants us to get at in Romans is to get at that question that we might would say, then who can be saved? And even to take it a little deeper, because hopefully our reason for that question is, then how can I be saved? If all this is true, how can I be saved? And so he writes in Galatians 3.10, this is a good place for us to know all who rely on works of the law are under a curse because it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law the righteous shall live by faith but the law is not of faith rather the one who does them shall live by them Christ redeemed us, purchased us, bought us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He becomes a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great exchange, Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then we are saved by works, by the perfect finished work of Christ, obeying the law perfectly from the heart at every single place, perfect and holy as God. And then on the cross becomes the curse so that those who have faith in him are now hidden in him and we get his righteousness. So when you stand before God, you don't stand before God and say, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm not, you don't let your conscience do the talking for you. You don't say all these things that I use to excuse my sin. You should be able to say, I'm against you and you only have I sinned. I am a worm. I am dust. I am unworthy. I am unholy. I am nothing good. I am, <laughs> you know, because in Christ you're saying these things in recognition of the fact that, but in Christ I am your child. I am your son. I stand before you clothed in righteousness and holiness. I have a new heart. I have a new spirit. I have people praying for me. I have a church that loves me. I have you and your spirit and your son and you're in love with me, holding me close and holding me tight. You have saved me by nothing but your mere good pleasure. If you judge me by my personal works apart from Christ, I would be undone. That even our tears of repentance have to be washed by the blood of Christ. You saved me. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That is the gospel and why we cling to him. But you've got to understand how messed up you are without and apart from Christ. So that anything good within you is Christ dwelling and working in you. Even a non-believer that has anything good, anything that looks good and is acting good and conforming to what the law teaches is the common grace of God at work in the world. And when that restraint is removed, then stand back because you ain't seen hell let loose on nothing yet in the severity with which it could be when God stops restraining sin in his common grace. But have you seen it? Because you can look within your own heart and say, if God were to completely unrestrain me, what horrific terrors would I unleash? 
But you might think you're a pretty good person that wouldn't ever do anything bad. So, you know, good. It's good to have good people. <laughs> but be aware that that's just the grace of God in your life too. But that we're all far worse than we think we are. And God is at work. Jeremiah 31, we don't have time to get into it. I'll give you a new heart. It's the gospel. This new heart. Sprinkle clean. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Our consciences are being purified. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism is an appeal to God for a new heart, an appeal to God for, for a good conscience. That's what we're doing in, in the gospel. Give me a good conscience. I want, to be, I want to be saved, I want to be good, and I also want a new heart that works within me that makes me navigate right and wrong in a way where I'm not just adding to the chaos. There is shalom in my wake, and it can only be because of the work of Christ in us. And just remember, he will judge these secret things. We're all naked before a holy God, but in Christ we're clothed with his righteousness. So the question is, are you here today only a hearer of the gospel, a hearer of the good news of Jesus Christ, or are you a doer of the gospel? For even in the Old Testament, the doer of the law lived by faith. By faith, Abraham did what he did. By faith, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Salvation is ever and only been possible since the fall through faith in God and in his Christ Jesus our Savior our Lord our righteousness our shepherd our God our friend so we would say soli deo gloria to God alone be the glory let's pray Father God you sent your son to die on a cross shameful death of a cross cursed death of a cross but by the power of the eternal spirit you raised him from the dead for our justification so that those who believe in you are are, are not just justified, but also sanctified so that we become more like you. Thank you for your word so that as we come to your table, we're reminded that for those who are united to you by faith, when we hear the word preached, it's like um, precious wine that brings great joy and gladness. It's like the bread of life where we know we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You sustain us and build us and bring us closer to yourself. So we thank you for this gospel that's ours. Help us to cling to it more tightly, to profess it more loudly, and to live with it um, in ever increasingly ways that we are not simply hearers of this good news, but possessors of it, clingers to it, doers of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.